Hey guys, Eric Lindine here. I'm the lead pastor of Mosaic Church in Maple Grove, Minnesota. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, encourages you, and transforms you, and that this is just the beginning of a conversation between you and Jesus. Enjoy the message. Good morning. Good to see you all here today. Those who are watching online, Bradley and Jenny up on your way to Duluth. Uh, Gail, everyone else watching online, good to see you. Glad you could make it this week. Uh, my name is Eric. Good to be one of the pastors here. Ryan, who's up here earlier doing announcements, he's our chairman of our governing team. Uh, and then the other Ryan, who's up here doing uh, the creed, he's our youth pastor. Uh, and so that's kind of some of our leadership team. But yeah, we'd love to just... Uh, help you take your next step spiritually, wherever that might be, in following Jesus. Uh, and we believe that we are a family on mission together. We talk a lot that we are, uh, there's a lot of great big box churches in the Twin Cities, and they're wonderful. And if that's what you are looking for, uh, we can recommend some great ones like that. We said we're a little bit different than that. We're not a chain restaurant like Olive Garden or uh, Red Lobster. We're more like a food truck. And so you never know where we're going to pop up. Uh, but we believe in having community of, of knowing each other and being known. And so uh, we kind of describe ourselves. I was talking with Brenton about this uh, back at the sound booth. Like, we consider ourselves like contemplative charismatic. Uh, so we believe in, 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 in worship and, and following the spirits, but also in the contemplative practices. And so we've been in this series called uh, Rhythms, Practicing the Way of Jesus. Because we believe following Jesus means having some habits, some practices that we need to make rhythms in our lives to help us become the kind of people that Jesus wants us to be. Because our goal is to become like Jesus, to do the things that Jesus did, uh, and to, to be with Jesus on a regular basis. So that's, that's our goal. So here we are, we've been walking through these rhythms this week. Uh, would you pray with me? And then we're going to dive into today's message. God, thank you that you are here in this place. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the just the gift to come together in community. God, we just never want to take that for granted. I pray that you'd be with me as I share this, this morning, that everyone in here would receive from you just the, the message, the word they need to receive. God, I pray that those who are feeling anxious, heavy laden, that your spirit would relieve that burden, that your peace that surpasses all understanding would come right now and Guard our hearts and minds. God, I, I pray for those who just need their spirits lifted up. God, that your joy would be our strength. And God, just fill us with hope. Hope for today, hope for the future. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I am a child, really, of the 80s and 90s. Any other Gen Xers in the room? Or a lot of millennials, some boomers. Yeah, okay, we've got a few of us, child of the 80s and 90s. We had awesome cartoons, don't you think? So one of my favorite cartoons, I wonder if you're a fan, Aaron, I don't know, G.I. Joe. Any other fans of G.I. Joe? Okay, at least me. Good, good, good. I love G.I. Joe, the cartoon. I have probably 100 G.I. Joe comic books and a bunch of G.I. Joe action figures. Um, I was a big fan of G.I. Joe. You got Snake Eyes and Shipwreck, and you got Destro and the Baroness. It was a ton of fun. Uh, remember, this is like the 80s, and we're still in the Cold War. You know, we're fighting our enemies. And so, you know, as, as a pastor who's probably a little bit more of a pacifist in nature, 
you probably don't expect me to talk about G.I. Joe, but I do. I love to G.I. Joe. And at the end of their cartoons, does anyone remember, uh, they'd have these like little like infomercials. Or maybe kids were playing on the railroad tracks and then like roadblock, big guy would come out and like, don't do this, uh, you know, because a train could come and you could die. And it's like, okay, good. Now I know. Does anybody know? And knowing is half the battle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So knowing is half the battle. Today we're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, what do you need to know? And actually, knowing probably isn't half the battle. It's probably more like 10% of the battle. But we'll explain that a little bit later. But one thing that G.I. Joe did teach me was that there is a secret war going on. That There is an enemy, uh, the cobra, the serpent, who wants to kill and destroy and spread lies so that our way of life is disturbed and we don't live the good life. And ultimately, I think there is a great parallel with our lives today that we need to understand that we are at war. Now, for a lot of us who maybe uh, are younger Gen Xers, millennials, uh, Gen Z, we don't like the language of war too much, right? Because we have these like bad memories maybe of fighting the culture war and you know uh, just all this kind of stuff like onward Christian soldier makes us kind of cringe nowadays. And so we like to talk a lot more about your faith is a journey. You know, just one step at a time. And that's all true. Yes, following Jesus is a journey. And we're following in the footsteps of our rabbi. But we also need to understand that Jesus and the New Testament writers are very clear that we are at war. Now, our war, Paul tells us, the apostle, is not against flesh and blood. We say a lot, other churches are not the enemy. People that don't go to church anywhere are not the enemy. People are not our enemy. But we are at war. And for the dominant part of Christianity in the last 2,000 years, this has been fully understood. But I think our enemy has done a great job over the last 50 years or so to really blind us to this reality uh, that we are at war. Here's what uh, St. Augustine uh, in AD 418 said. During this earthly pilgrimage, our life cannot be free from temptation. For none of us comes to know ourselves except through the experience of temptation. Nor can we be crowned until we have come through victorious. Nor be victorious until we have been in battle. Nor fight our battles unless we have an enemy and temptations to overcome. We can't be victorious. We can't receive that crown until we've been through some stuff. And so we are at war. Here's how John Mark Comer, one of my favorite newer theologians, says it this way. Every day can feel like war on our souls, a spiritual assault on our faith, a fight to just stay saved, or at least to stay orthodox, to stay faithful to Jesus, and to stay sane, much less to stay happy and at peace. I know us recognize this, resonate with this. Every day it feels like there is a battle for our souls, a battle against culture and just everything around us. And so we're going to talk about that today. Here's how C.S. Lewis wrote it. He lived through uh, two world wars, but he says, There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Thanks. I was off the last two weeks with Ryan preaching, so I'm a little, uh, I'm out of practice. I need some water. Thank you. Um, C.S. Lewis says, 
There's no neutral ground. That's a stark way of looking at it. That every second, every piece of ground is, is being fought at either by the, our enemy or by God. So what does that mean? It means that when it comes to temptation, most of us think that the only thing at stake is what I see in front of me. That is because we don't see clearly. See, we all face temptation. But oftentimes we think it's just this one thing. But that's because we're not seeing clearly about the long-term effects. See, perhaps your family was wrecked by your mom's alcoholism. But see, her temptation wasn't just that one drink, that one thing she saw in front of her. She didn't see clearly that her actions were going to have ramifications for her future, for her family, perhaps for her faith. That one opportunity of of, of feeling like, I'm going to give in and look at something inappropriate online. Oftentimes we think, well, it's just about this one moment, but we're not seeing clearly that there's so much more at stake than what we think. When we give in to skipping church and getting out of the habit of regularly gathering other believers, and hear me, we talk, hey, we love your cabins and, and sports and all that stuff, but when we get out of that habit and we're giving into that again and again and again, we're not seeing clearly how this one decision is shaping us into be the kind of people that doesn't gather with God's people on a regular basis. When we give in to that temptation of, of greed or of losing my temper, whatever that might be, we think so often it's just about this moment, but we're not seeing clearly of the long-term effects and that truly we are in a battle. Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul writes it this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. It's one of the titles or nicknames for the Satan or the devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're going to see today that we are at war, and we have really three chief enemies. And a lot of church history talks about those three enemies, and we see them here. We see the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, a lot of today's messages are actually coming from these two books, um, and so I just want to kind of highlight them. This one is amazing. John Mark Comer's Live No Lies. Um, C.S. Lewis has some great stuff as well. But then this one, uh, Evagoras of Pontus, um, Talking Back, a Monastic Handbook, for combating demons. Isn't that the greatest subtitle you've ever heard? Uh, That is awesome. And so we're going to talk a little bit about these three big enemies, the devil, the flesh, and the world. And primarily how the devil works is through deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. What does that mean? That's what we're going to get into today. So Evagrius, a pontus, he wrote this book, a monastic handbook for combating demons. Uh, in the fourth century, he went out into the desert to fight the devil as one does, right? So he truly believed following in the footsteps of Jesus meant, all right, Jesus went into the desert to fight the devil, so this is what I'm going to do. So he was this monk who um, previously had had, you know, kind of a, a, a wild and crazy youth. He fell in love with a married woman. Uh, the husband came after him, so he, he ran away and then found Jesus became a monk, and went into the desert to fight the devil. And so another monk asked him to write down his observations. And that's what this book really is. It's a translation of the Latin uh, of writing down his observations. Now, I would kind of think, all right, uh, fourth century, 
going out into the desert. It's probably some crazy stuff like, you know, um, holy water and, you know, um, relics, these kind of things. But ultimately, his thesis is that the devil primarily tempts us and fights with deceptive ideas. That's the devil's primary weapon against us is through lies. Jesus says that the devil is a liar and his natural language that he speaks are lies. Here's how Evagrius really puts it. Our fight with the devil is first and foremost a fight to take back control of our minds from their captivity to lies and liberate them with the weapon of truth. Now what's amazing about this is that modern day psychologists would say, they would take out the devil talk, but say, yeah, this is really what you need to do. That you are held back by lies, by certain patterns of thinking that is holding you back, and you need to now have new patterns of thinking. Uh, it's what um, neurologists call, you know, elasticity of, of, your, of your mind, and, and, and branch out those neuropaths so you can rewire your brain and, and think new thoughts. And so really what his handbook is, is he lists all the ways the devil comes and puts lies and deceptions in our head. And how do we combat that? Through scripture. See, even modern day psychologists would say, you can't just reject an idea and then have an empty mind. If you reject the lies of the devil, you have to then fill your mind with something else. And so in this fight against the devil... What you, we, you and I need to do is have scripture. And so this handbook really talks about, he lays out like, when the devil comes at you with this, here's a scripture from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And he really goes through like the whole Bible on like really eight of the main lies that the devil's going to come at you and, and, and speak against you. This week, Pastor Ryan and I were in the office and we were talking about the lies that the devil brings against us. And I said, you know, it kind of bothers you sometimes when pastors are on stage and they really act like they move beyond all of this and they have no more temptations. But see, the lies that the devil is going to tell us are ones that have maybe a kernel of truth or something that could easily be believed. So the devil's not going to come at us and be like, hey, you know what? The moon landing really didn't happen. Like that just happened in, you know, the deserts or Elvis is still alive. Because we're like, even if it's true, what does it matter? We're talking, Ryan, uh, we say, you know, the devil's going to come at him and say, hey, you're never going to get married. No one's ever going to love you like that. So the devil attacks me and says things like, hey, you'd be happier divorced. Because you have a bunch of pastor friends who made that decision to leave the ministry. They left their wife. Then they found someone new and they go on all these new adventures and they seem so much happier. See, these are real things that the devil comes at us with. And so what we have to learn is how do we combat those lies? How do we turn our mind towards the truth of Scripture? But first, it's, it's realizing the devil speaks lies. And your whole Christian walk, those lies are going to come at you. Jesus, in Mark 1, 9 through 11, we've been talking kind of this life uh, uh, a week kind of in the life of Jesus, we've been going through Mark 1, and we've been talking about how Jesus models simplicity, how he modeled silence and solitude, how he modeled keeping the Sabbath, these different things. And, and we're going to see 
Jesus models fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. Mark 1, 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, Galilee, and was baptized. As we did at the big start of the summer. Some of you took that faith step of getting baptized. Baptism is an outward expression of that inward decision to follow Jesus. So we want to be like Jesus. So we want to be baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. First thing I want to pause here, and I could preach a whole sermon on this, but before Jesus went to go battle with the devil, his identity was confirmed of who he is and whose he is. He is God's son in whom God is well pleased. He's baptized, he's commissioned, and then the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. I love this picture of Jesus dripping wet, commissioned the truth of God over his life. And the spirit, hey, we love you. Now your reward is to go into the desert for 40 days and fight the devil. It's like, what? I think sometimes we think that when God loves us, that means we're going to have just, you know, safety and security but sometimes that means battle. And for a long time, you know, the other gospel writers talk about this, that at the end of 40 days, that's when Satan, the tempter, the deceiver, tempted Jesus. And I thought, oh, the devil's waiting until Jesus is at his weakest moment. He's been 40 days without food and water. Oh, okay, this is why he's tempting him then. But I think instead, that's when Jesus was at his strongest. See, Jesus prepared himself by knowing what his identity was, by being commissioned by his father, spending time praying and fasting, then he was ready to do battle. And so one of the ways that we, when, if you have some what's called besetting sins, sins that you feel like you just cannot break, you cannot break this pattern of lies, we need to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. We're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks more, of setting t- intentional time for prayer and fasting. Because that is one of the ways Jesus prepared himself to do battle with our enemy. John Mark Comer says it this way, the devil lies about who God is, about who we are, and what the good life is, with an aim to undermine our trust in God's love and wisdom. His intent is to get us to seize autonomy from God and redefine good and evil for ourselves, hereby leading to the ruin of our souls and society. This is what we see in Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says, does God really love you? Did God really say? See, the, the serpent, the devil, the deceiver, he wants us to doubt that God has best interest for us. He wants us to redefine things our own way instead of trusting that God has what's best for us. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples, and you will know the truth the truth will set you free. How do we combat the lies of the devil? It's by getting into God's truth, by soaking our minds in his truth so that when those lies come, we can say, no, God's word tells me to do this, to soak in this truth of God's word. Because then once we know the truth, the truth will set us free. 
I'm going to kind of cruise today in our teaching because I was talking with Ryan about this. Uh, last two weeks, we've been going a little long. And so this week, uh, try to get done within an hour. I'm going to kind of go fast. So we're going to kind of go fast through a bunch of different ideas. And we're going to go into deeper in the next couple weeks. But three quick implications of Jesus' teaching on the devil. Number one, he is real. He's immaterial, not physically in this world that we can see, but an intelligent being. In our 21st century, we, we like, uh, really, there's a devil, there's a, a, a deceiver? Yes, he's very real. Number two, his end goal is to spread ruin in our souls and in society around us. And number three, his primary means is lies. He's going to try to implant lies in our minds. How do we fight the devil? We practice the spiritual disciplines laid down by Jesus, such as silence and solitude, Ryan talked about it last week, prayer and scripture, and continually set our minds before the spirit and truth of God. When tempted, we stand in quiet trust in God's love and wisdom and bring our minds back to Scripture. When we have these practices of having margin in our lives, because we've been practicing silence and solitude, we've been practicing the Sabbath, uh, getting into Scripture and prayer, that then when the lies of the enemy comes, we can reject them and fill them with God's truth. That's how we fight the devil. So the devil primarily works through deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires of our flesh. The heart, wants what, what, the heart wants what it wants. How many of you have heard that phrase before? Yeah. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from an interview with Woody Allen. Woody Allen was a director, is a director of many films. Woody Allen was in a long-term relationship marriage with Mia Farrow. And Mia brought two adopted kids into their marriage. And what happened was, eventually, Mia found inappropriate photos on Woody Allen's desk of their adopted daughter uh, in the nude and found out that he had been having an affair with their adopted daughter. Well, eventually, Woody Allen married his adopted daughter and in an interview, he justifies his actions by saying, well, the heart wants what it wants. See, that phrase oftentimes, we say it like, yeah, follow your heart, that's good, but to the problem is our heart it's filled with disordered desires. And in fact, our heart can't be the thing that we are following because even our heart is divided, right? Like, when I go to the grocery store, I have a choice, right? Am I just going to get the stuff on the list or am I going to swing by and get some peanut butter M&Ms and some ice cream? And then I'm going through the checkout line and I look at one, you know, list of magazines and I see all the ripped guys in their six-packs and I think, I want that, and then I look over and see another set of magazines, and it's like Martha Stewart's like triple chocolate dessert with ice cream, and it's like, I want that. My heart wants both those things, but you can't have the triple chocolate ice cream on a daily basis and have the six-pack abs. Amen? Right? Like, even our own desires are at conflict of what we want. I want to be present with my kids and available for them and spending time with them, but I also want them to leave me alone sometimes because I want some alone time. Amen? Right? We have these desires, both these things, but they are war within us at times. So our heart can't be our true north star because it's going to lead us astray. The problem is these, these disordered desires that we have in our flesh. See, it's not very common to talk about the ancient uh, practice of the mortification of our flesh. That is what the reformers would talk much more about. 
which was saying, hey, my flesh has evil desires. I need to crucify it. And, and, and instead, right now, we talk much more about, hey, just follow your heart. It's all good. You know, this is the good life. But we have disordered desires in our flesh. See, our flesh, it's our base, primal, animalistic drives for self-gratification, especially as pertains to sexuality and survival. See, when we follow Jesus, we become a new creation, but there is this fight where we still have our flesh. And we're constantly fighting against it. When Jesus died on the cross, he won the victory. It's already happened, but we're still waiting for the ultimate culmination of that victory. So the devil, he has been ultimately defeated. He's like a dying dragon who's still dangerous. Same thing with our flesh. We've been crucified with Christ. We are a new creation. But I think as we can all attest, we still have these disordered desires inside of us that we have to fight against. And how do we fight that? John Mark Comer says it this way. The devil's goal is first to isolate us, then implant in our minds deceitful ideas that play to our disordered desires, the flesh, which we feel comfortable with because they are normalized by the status quo of our society. The devil says, hey, you'd be much happier with a new wife. Right? My flesh says, hey, I, I, I want someone, someone new, something exciting. Marriage can get stale. And we get comfortable with that because we look around us and society says, yeah, follow your heart. This is good. We have these enemies, the unholy trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil that we have to fight against. Cornelius Plantiga, uh, a modern uh, theologian, says this way. says, in such a culture, the self exists to be explored, indulged, and expressed, but not disciplined or restrained. And so much of our world today, we tell our kids, we tell adults, hey, go find you. You do you. You chase your truth. Whatever is good for you, as long as you don't harm anyone else, that's good. That's the standard of our society. But the problem is we have these disordered desires. Our flesh is not something that can be our true north. How do we fight the flesh? We feed our spirits and starve our flesh by practicing habits laid down by Jesus. Specifically, fasting and confession of sin. As we do this over time, we not only grow our own willpower muscles, but more importantly, we open our minds and bodies to a power that is beyond us, God's spirit. There is something about abstaining from food that helps us fight our flesh. This is something I've been trying to do more and more of, of, of fasting, you know, uh, intermittent fasting, which is a, a very uh, popular thing nowadays for, for health reasons, where you take 16 hours and say, I'm not going to eat. Instead, I'm going to fix my mind on Christ. And, and when you go without food, it raises all these things in your body uh, that you become much more, more aware of. And you realize, I need to put these down. And it's not always pleasant at first, but then there is an increased clarity and I think the opportunity to grow in Christ and to reject the disordered desires of our flesh. And we're going to talk about fasting actually as a spiritual practice in just a couple of weeks. Now, a lot of people will talk about fasting as like, I'm fasting from social media, I'm fasting from TV. That's fine. Those are good practices. But that's not the kind of fasting that Jesus and God's followers have done for the last 2,000 years. There is something about fighting our flesh that when we go without food is a different practice than really any other practice. And so stay tuned for that in a couple weeks when we get into that. We have deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society, the world. Burning CDs. 
All right, I got to admit, I gave in to the crime of piracy uh, when I was uh, a college student. Anyone else do that? Remember those, sometimes they play those previews for movies and it's like, stealing is a crime. You wouldn't steal a car. Why would you steal music? Why would you steal a film? You know, but... In the early days of Napster and, and iTunes and things like this, uh, I was in a band and, and a lot of musicians, and, and we'd like to share music. And so what would I do? I would burn CDs and, and give them out to friends and be like, here's, here's some new music. Check this out. Check this out, right? Until eventually, I really felt convicted by that and like that I shouldn't do that because you know, at the time, like a CD made is 15 bucks. And so it's like, you know, depending on what you're getting paid, it was like an hour or two worth of your wages to buy that CD, but I was also a musician and trying to sell some CDs, and it's like, man, I want to support those artists, and so eventually I kind of stopped doing that. The problem is, though, when, when you stop doing that or you, you choose to not receive a burned CD from someone else, people will get mad at you <laughs> because they're like, why? You think you're better than me? You ever been in a situation where people are doing something that you know is not the right thing, and you're like, no, I'm not going to do that thing? They can get kind of angry because you are now pushing back against the status quo of of, of the reality of the culture around you that says, hey, this is okay. And so what happens is our culture, the world, is we live in this sinful society that wants to tell us really that uh, the ways of the world is is good. That, you know... uh, Hey, you know, monogamy, that, that's old-fashioned. Just live your truth, live your life, have as many partners as you want, and that's the good life. That's what Foucault said in the last century. And do you know where his philosophy led him in life? He believed the best way to live was after he got AIDS was to sleep with as many people as possible and expose them to his disease and then all die together in one big party. That was the end result of Foucault's philosophy. But see, we have this culture that doesn't really second guess, right? The sexual liberation and and all these things of the last 50 years, and and we keep pushing that more and more and, and the boundaries and saying there should be no boundaries. But if that's what's good and true, then shouldn't our culture be moving in a better direction? Shouldn't divorce and abortion and fatherlessness all be going down? And yet, if we look at our culture and society, all those things are getting worse. And yet, we, we, we've said the answer, though, is just, no, hey, no boundaries. But when we look around us, what are the fruit of that? But it's very hard to push back on, on that idea because our culture around us, our sinful society, say, no, 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 this, this, this is the truth, not God's word. And so it is easy to give in to these Deceitful ideas and disordered desires because of the world around us is telling us, no, no, this is okay. This is the way to live. The way I'm using the world is a system of ideas, values, morals, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and institutionalized in a culture corrupted by rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. This is the world we live in that says, no, no, no. There isn't one truth. Just follow your truth. Do your thing. And, and that is the pathway to, to, to health and happiness. Pre-Christian culture is really what we see around the world of a lot of barbaric cultures 
Uh, it's also very popular now to talk about that, hey, all cultures are, are good and true. Uh, when you're talking about, you know, pre-Christian culture uh, in, in the Americas where they would tear out the hearts of people while they were still alive and sacrifice them to their gods, that, that's not good, right? Uh, slavery has existed in almost every single culture up until the last, you know, 200 years. Uh, it was just accepted norm in almost every single culture. Uh, and so we see pre-Christian culture is where people are just kind of doing whatever they did, a lot of uh, uh, things done in the name of false gods and, and barbaric acts. Then we see Christianized culture, not Christian culture, because culture can't be Christian and saved. But we see that as these Christian ideals came into society, there were a lot of good and there was some bad. And we can, we, we can really talk about that. That uh, I've been reading this very thick uh, biography on George Washington, and it's just it's mind-boggling to, to hear them wrestle with these ideas that really, for the first time in the world, the ideas of life and liberty, which is freedom, and the pursuit of happiness, and, and, and a government you know, by the people, for the people, a republic, not a democracy, because that's been tried and seen wanting. And so... But in the midst of that, he, George Washington is wrestling because he has soldiers who, generals who say, hey, we, what we should do is we should, we should free a bunch of our slaves and, and then draft them into the army, and that'll help us as we fight the British. But George Washington, as he built all his wealth on the back of slaves in Virginia, was like, I don't like the implications of this. And even though he was a God-fearing man who, who loved God, he, his culture around him told, no, 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 like, we need to have slavery. And so... That's a Christianized culture, but still a lot of evils and, and things that needed to be addressed. And, and you look at it and you're like, man, how, how could they possibly believe in liberty, but still slavery and all this stuff? But there were some good things there too, right? And so we see that really in America was a Christianized culture up until probably the last 50 years or so. And now what we, we call America and Europe would be a post-Christian culture. We've kind of moved beyond Christianity. Now, here's the issue with a post-Christian culture. Mark Sayers, a uh, pastor and cultural anthropologist out of New Zealand, uh, he says it this way. Post-Christian culture attempts to retain the solace of faith while gutting it of the costs, commitments, and restraints that the gospel places upon the individual will. I also think a lot of our churches, and I'm not pointing fingers, and a lot of us Christians want this as well, the solace of faith by gutting out all of the costs, the commitments, and restraints. Boy, that hits me, because we want individualism, and we don't want any kind of cost or commitment. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for the justice and shalom of the kingdom, where everyone is treated equally, everyone is loved, that there is shalom, which means perfect peace between humanity, humans, between God and nature around us. They want that. They yearn for that while defending the reign of the individual will. Hey, no, no, no. You do you. You speak your truth. We're denying that there is truth. We're denying those old claims of, of the Bible and, and saying, no, there is one truth. So the problem is they, they want the fruit of the gospel without the cost of the gospel. That is the culture we find ourselves in now. So how do we fight the world? Well, we gather with our church family on a regular, consistent basis. The church should be a counterculture that has the potential to not only survive, but also flourish as a creative minority 
loving the host culture from the margins. Our culture is not our enemy. This isn't a message that we need to take back politics and fight against our culture. But we need to recognize the world is not our home. It's one of our enemies. And so we exist as followers of Jesus who are separated out of culture to say, hey, we're not going to give in to this the way that everyone else lives. We're going to be a creative minority loving and blessing individuals from the outside. That is what we're called to do, to love our neighbors, to, to bless them. We're blessed to be a blessing. It's to recognize the systems of the world are evil. They, they, they help us want to embrace these disordered desires and deceptive lies of the devil. But the people around us are not our enemy. We're not Christians who are just huddling up on a cruise ship waiting for God to rapture us. We've said this since day one, right? We're a battleship. We're at war. Everyone has a role. Everyone has a purpose. Maybe your job is you're doing prayer coverage <laughs> as people fly in and, and, and do ministry with our teens, with our kids, uh, you know, as you're sent out to different places. We go into the world to liberate the captive, to care for the fatherless and the immigrants and and those on the margins of society. We provide love and friendship and saying, hey, it doesn't matter who you voted for. It doesn't matter where you were born. What unites us in the gospel is much stronger than what divides us, amen? But we have to recognize we're in a battle. Battle isn't against other people. It's against the devil. It's against our flesh. It's against the world. The church should be a community of deep, relationship ties in a culture of individualism and isolation. Again, one of the devil's chief weapons to get you to believe those lies is to isolate you. He wants to get you alone. He wants to get you to feel like you have no friendships, no community. The church should be a place, though, where you don't feel isolated. Brian talked about it last week. There's a huge difference between isolation and solitude. Solitude is, on purpose, getting away to meet with God. Isolation is feeling lonely and disconnected. Isolation is not good. Solitude is good. But it needs to be a community of deep relationship ties. We talk about this. Like, we don't want you just to come and have no deep ties, but it takes work. You got to put the work in. You got to say, all right, school year, September through May, I'm committing to my community group. All right, you know what? I haven't been discipled maybe ever. I'm going to meet with Pastor Ryan. I'm going to meet with, with Eric. I'm going to meet with Aaron. I'm going to meet with Ethan. Meet with Kristen, uh, whoever our other disciples are right now. You know, we're going to do one-on-one discipleship because I need these deep relationships. A community of holiness and a culture of hedonism. Our culture says just give in, just have fun. The highest purpose is just, you know, doing whatever feels good. But holiness, that's being set apart for a purpose. That's being like God. And a community of order and a culture of chaos, right? All around us is chaos. We say, no, we have a solid rock. Our foundation is firm on Jesus, on his word. And in the midst of everything going on around us, we have order in the midst of chaos. Deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. This is the unholy trinity that's at war against us. We need to open our eyes and realize we are at war. See, when it comes to temptation, most of us think that the only thing at stake is what I see in front of me. That's because we don't see clearly. We don't see that we're at 
in a battle. We don't see what's at stake. And what's at stake is your future, your family, and your faith. Man, I've shared stories of the last seven years as a lead pastor of leading this church. People who gave in to little things. And what happened? It cost them their future. It cost them their family. It cost them their faith. That breaks my heart as your pastor. I think people didn't realize they're in a battle. They're in war. We have to stay vigilant. And when you give in to one little thing, it's easier to give in to something else. It's easier to give in to something else. And you look up and your future has changed. You're divorced. You've lost your family. You've walked away from your faith. You have no relationship with Jesus. You have no relationship with Jesus' church, his family. The stakes are high. My goal at the end of this message is that you see that we are at war. We have a battle. Again, here's what Paul says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then I could stop the message and say, all right, do better, try harder. But that's not the gospel. Here's the gospel. But God, oh man. Ryan and I were talking about this week. I said, man, if you can read that and not get teared up a little bit, oh, check yourself in. Like, check your soul, because that is some of the best content in all of the Bible. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Come on, somebody. Amen. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, his mosaic, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is the good news of the gospel. That we have enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're coming at us but guess what? We have the victory in Christ. See, we can fight from a place of victory. Victory is assured. What happened on the cross, it's like D-Day, Normandy. The, the, the allies have landed on the beach. The victory is assured. We still have to get to Berlin, though, right? We still have this, this fight here on earth. We, we still have to battle. The ultimate victory is secured. Jesus is coming back. We know that. Now, it's the cleanup victory, right? By grace, we've been saved through faith. We like to say this a lot. Dallas Willard says, grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. We don't have to earn it. We receive it freely from him. However, it's going to take some effort. We need to gird up our loins, get ready for battle, and realize the stakes are high. Today, I'm going to invite the worship band up, and we're going to close our service with a time of communion and then singing uh, some worship. Now, what I want you to do is to, to like, think I'm going into battle this week. And as you go into battle, as we fight the deceptive lies of the devil, the disordered desires of our flesh, 
and, 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 and the sinful culture around us to know we have the victory through Christ. Today, if there's something, anxiety, worry, fear, an addiction, something that, that you have been fighting and you cannot gain victory over, what I want is as we receive communion to remind yourself that you have victory through Jesus and his work on the cross. But then here's the second thing. Paul tells us to examine ourselves before receiving communion. Another practice that really helps us fight deceptive ideas and disordered desires is the practice of confession. Now, this is something that perhaps has been um, twisted beyond its original context, where oftentimes now the only confession people do maybe is to a Catholic priest behind a barrier. They don't really know who you are. It's getting something off your chest. That is not what the New Testament authors talk about confession. It's confess your sins, James tells us, one to another. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do something. This is bold. Before receiving communion, and actually I'm going to ask the two Ryans to uh, carry the elements. I forgot to ask you earlier. Uh, So if we have Holland and Brown back there, they're going to be down here front holding the elements. Before you do that, is there something that you need to confess to God? But even more powerful, is there something you need to confess maybe to your spouse or to someone in the room? Just to say, hey, I've been losing my cool with my kids. I've been giving in to the sin of anger. Now, think about this morning. I was like, I think it's much better to confess it that way. I've been given in to the sin of lust. I've been given in to the sin of anger, to the sin of gluttony, to the sin of pride. Because you are not prideful. You are not a glutton. You are a new creation in Christ. But sometimes we, we mess up and we fall and we sin. It's not your identity. Your identity is a son, a daughter of God. But we need to confess these things. That, hey, I've been given into this thing. I've been given into anger, comparison, pride, lust, sloth, whatever that might be. Confess that to God or even more powerfully, confess it to someone around you. Because unhealthy things grow in the dark. But when we bring them into the light, that is when we find true healing. And that's when that power we find so often is broken. When you can confess the ways that you've given into this sin. So we're going to receive communion, and then the band's going to lead us in this, these songs about our victory. We fight from a place of victory. How do we fight our battles? It's on our knees, knowing God is with us. It's not a place from striving and you got to white knuckle it and try really hard to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. No. We have victory in Christ. We're saved by grace through faith. And now these spiritual practices that we've been talking about all summer that helps us in our fight as we're empowered by the Spirit to live like Jesus. I'm going to pray and then the band's going to play quietly and then I'm going to invite you to stand up and you can come down uh, we have two kinds of communion. We have the gluten-free and the gluten-filled. Uh, so Brown has got the uh, gluten-free. Holland has got the gluten-filled. Um, we believe we're one body. So what we do for communion, it's, I hate uh, the prepackaged fish food communion. So we bake our own communion bread um, and one loaf, one body. That's how we kind of believe. So we have our own bread here. Um, you can dip that in the cup, symbolize that his blood was shed for you, his body was broken for you. And then just receive communion whenever you want. 
Uh, I find it powerful to do with my wife, with my kids, uh, or perhaps even with your community group, whatever you want to do. Examine yourself, confess, come forward, receive this as a tangible reminder that we fight from a place of victory. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are here in this place. And although we have these enemies and although we fight and we battle, God, you have the ultimate victory. And so I just pray that we'd be empowered by your spirit to follow your rhythms, to to walk in your ways. God, as we take the bread and, and we dip it in the cup, God, that we'd be reminded that your body and your blood was shed and broken for us and, and, and so that we could have victory. And then you rose, breaking the power of, of the devil and the world and our flesh. God, I pray right now for those who are, are struggling maybe with a certain sin. There's something in their lives they felt like they cannot get victory over and they're trying and they're trying. God, move in their hearts to confess that thing to you, to someone else, to, to, to find help, to, to find accountability. Because God, I believe that your desire is for us to live free in you and not held back by sins and addictions and, and guilt and shame. So God, as we receive communion, just let our hearts overflow with thankfulness for what you did for us, for the power of the cross and your grace for every one of us. In your name we pray, amen. Would you stand now? Thank you so much for joining us on the Mosaic Maple Grove podcast. I want to encourage you to take the message you just received and allow it to go deeply into your soul. Let Jesus do the deep work that only he can do. A special thank you to everyone who gives to Mosaic Maple Grove. Your generosity allows this message to go out into the world. You can be a part of the Mosaic Tribe by going to mymosaicchurch.com. You can also subscribe, rate, and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thanks again for listening. Grace and peace, my friends.